We'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And we are continuing in our series through the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Matthew chapter 7. We are in the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. We're getting close to the end of this, uh, this glorious sermon. And I don't know about you, but it has been, uh, it has been quite convicting, quite encouraging, uh, quite sanctifying as we've gone through the teaching of Jesus in detail. Matthew chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. Now, if you were to make a list of the most abominable sins to our culture, of the things that people would condemn the most, judging other people would be high on the list, right? If not, if not top. To speak a negative word about another person or their lifestyle, their behavior, um, that's modern blasphemy, right? We, we've heard the phrases, we've said them perhaps, it's not my place to judge. Who am I to judge, right? Nobody can judge me. And in fact, many times, people will actually appeal to Jesus' words in Matthew 7. Right? Doesn't, doesn't Jesus say, judge not? So you can't criticize me. Well, this morning, we'll be examining these words from Christ regarding judgment. And what we're going to see is that there is a real and serious danger to be found if we judge others in the wrong manner. But what we'll also see is that there is a great deal of difference between judgmentalism and judging rightly. Ultimately, Jesus' words here are a call to turn from using ourselves as a standard of judgment and to rely upon God's righteous standard as revealed in His Word. So let's read our text, verses 1 through 6. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. As we come to this text on judging today, there's really three aspects here that Jesus uh, sort of is teaching us, right? The first is the dangers of judgmentalism, in verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 and 4, we see the ineffectiveness of judgmentalism. And then finally, in verses 5 and 6, the solution to judgmentalism. Now, before we really dig into this text, we need to understand what Jesus does mean and does not mean when he issues us his command, do not judge. What is he saying there? Well, this word in the Greek uh, means to pass judgment on, to criticize, to censure, to condemn, right? To make a moral evaluation against somebody. But we need to be careful because there is a difference between judging and judgmentalism, right? There was no word in ancient Greek for judgmentalism right? So Jesus uses this general term, judging. But ultimately, it is judgmentalism, as we'll see, that Jesus is describing here. The, the Christian columnist, Cal Thomas, gives us this helpful definition of what judging is and what judgmentalism is. He's an opinion columnist, and he says, opinion columnists, like the rest of humanity, walk a fine line between judgment, which is holding people accountable to a standard we did not create, and judgmentalism thinking ourselves morally superior because we haven't committed the acts of others. 
In essence, the difference between judgment and being judgmental is whether your standard is objective and outside of you or subjective, something that you arbitrarily created. Now, in our day, we tend to use the word judging to mean judgmental, right? That's really what we mean when we're, we're saying that word, don't judge me. We're saying don't be judgmental. Holding people, right, to our own standard of right and wrong and thinking negatively when they don't meet it. And again, this is really the essence of what Jesus is getting at here when he gives his disciples the command not to judge. And this really comes out in verse 2, as we'll see in a moment. But this command refers to making a judgment of another person, in essence, right? Don't do that, Jesus says. But again, by what standard? By what standard? Well, as we'll see in verse 2, your own man-made standard. And really, this kind of judgmentalism uh, manifests in two ways. The first is that we think negatively about others for something that is not sin. Right? Um, we as Christians can be really good at this sometimes. Right? You voted for who? You must not be a good Christian. Right? You, you use what Bible translation? I mean, do you even love Jesus? You made what educational choice for your children? <laughs> you must be a terrible parent, right? We, we can be really good at that as Christians. We create a picture of what a good person or what a good Christian looks like, which happens to look remarkably like us, and then we measure others by that picture. The second way this kind of judgmentalism manifests is extending no grace towards somebody when they sin or fail, making a snap judgment that this person needs to suffer the full weight of justice when all we know about the situation is, is that much, right? Like what we can maybe see with our eyes. And we do it without considering our own sinfulness, right? We, we, tend, to think, we can think, uh, tend to think that we can see things from this purely objective, just position because we're more morally superior, right, than we actually are. That's what we think about ourselves. And Jesus forbids this kind of judgmentalism in verse 1 for several reasons. But the first is that it's dangerous. It is dangerous. Jesus tells us, judge not that you be not judged. And what does that last part mean? Well, verse 2 tells us. Jesus says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. For the judgment with which you pronounce, you will be judged. The ultimate danger of judgmentalism is that it ultimately ends up condemning us. It's like a boomerang, right? Jesus tells us that the judgment we pronounce on other people will be used to judge us. And really, that reveals the heart of judgmentalism, right? Jesus says the judgment, who's pronouncing? You are pronouncing. There's that subjective, man-made standard. Similarly, Jesus says the measure that we use to measure others will be used to measure us. This is a, a great word picture. Somebody gets out a tape measure, measures you, right? Well, you just keep applying that standard. This is the danger of judgmentalism. Our condemnation of others will ultimately swing back around to condemn us. And this doesn't just refer to our subjective judgments about the specific kinds of actions that others do, but also the level of mercy and grace that we extend to them. As James says, James 2.13, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. One of the most striking biblical examples of what we see in verse 2, being judged by your own judgment, is with King David. 
keep your thumb in Matthew, but turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12. Now King David, uh, you, you may be familiar with this story, had done something very bad. He had committed adultery with another man's wife and then had orchestrated this plot after uh, he, he got that man's wife pregnant to have her husband murdered. Very bad, right? And he gets away with it. So he thinks. But here's what we read. In chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan, who was a prophet, to David. He came to him and said to him, King David, right? There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he, he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So you see what's happening in that story? There's a, a rich man who steals this poor man's precious lamb and slaughters it without any regard. And then David's anger, verse 5, was greatly kindled against that man, the rich man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the man, David. This was a parable of what David had done with Bathsheba and Uriah, her husband. Can you imagine David's face in that moment? You are the man. David pronounces a subjective judgment against this hypothetical man, right? He says, this is what should happen to him. But God never prescribed death in the law, in the Torah, for stealing a lamb. That wasn't the punishment. And so David introduces his own subjective standard that he has and shows no mercy to this man. And what happens? He is condemned by his own judgment, by his own words. Paul speaks to the same reality in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Friends, think upon the times you have passed this kind of subjective judgment upon another person. Uh, a time when you may have observed their actions, and then made a judgment about their person or motive, right? Condemning them by your standard. Now, perhaps even as we're listening to this sermon, right? As, as you're struggling with the distraction out there, you may be tempted to exercise this kind of judgment. How many times have you done this? Right? We all have. Well, that gets turned right around on us, Jesus says. And by who? It's, it's by the Lord. Right? We are held accountable for the judgment that we judge others by. And, and it's true, we can look at somebody's actions and make a right judgment about those actions. Clearly, if somebody commits homicide, we can say that's wrong. But this kind of judgmentalism Jesus is describing is quite different. It is making a pronouncement about the person, about the heart, which we simply cannot know. God is the one who knows the heart. 
Ultimately, Jesus' explanation of the command in verse 1 is clear. If we establish ourselves as judges, then we ourselves will be judged by the same standard and the same law. That's the danger of judgmentalism. As John Stott aptly says, if we enjoy occupying the bench, now he's British, so just go with the vocabulary here, but if we enjoy occupying the bench, we must not be surprised to find ourselves in the dock. In other words, if we're prosecuting other people and judging other people, well, that's going to come around back at us, and we too will be judged. Not only is there a dangerous boomerang effect to judgmentalism, but judgmentalism also renders us morally blind and ineffective. Now let's look at the next few verses, 3 and 4. Jesus says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eyes, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? Jesus gives us a convicting illustration in these verses of what judgmentalism practically does in making us ineffective by blinding us and incapacitating us. This is one of Jesus' most well-known word pictures, right? The log and the speck. Uh, when we hear this word speck, we think of a little piece of dust, right? But that's not really what Jesus is getting at. He's, he's referring to a splinter, a tiny, tiny, tiny piece of wood. In contrast, the log he mentions here would, um, would not just be like a piece of firewood, right? But like a, a, a beam, like a building beam, something that would support an entire structure as big as a person, you know, enormous an enormous piece of wood, very large, very strong. So consider the picture that Jesus paints for us here in verse 3, when he says, Why do you see the speck in your brother's eyes, but ignore the log that's in your own? Right? We have this picture of a person, maybe we're, we're being judgmental, they have a tiny, tiny, barely noticeable splinter in their eye, while we, the judgmental one, are walking around with this enormous log sticking out, right? It's, a, it's an absurd picture, but that's what makes it so effective. Think about it for a second. How hard is it to see a splinter or something that size in somebody's eye? It is very hard. You have to be looking up close with a magnifying glass, don't you? You got to be looking for it on purpose, and that is part of what judgmentalism results from, a constant search for flaws and elements in others that don't measure up to our standards. But again, notice how significant a splinter is. Not very. It's tiny. Right? You, you probably can blink enough times or rinse it out and, and you'll be okay. But in the eye of the judgmental disciple is a log. Again, right? You, you get this picture of somebody who has this beam sticking out of their face, turning their head this way and that, causing all kinds of destruction. And imagine the seriousness, too, of having a log in your eye, right? You, I mean, you're, 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 you're dead, right? <laughs> there's no way around it. If there's a log sticking out of your eye, it's a serious problem. It's much more significant than a splinter, isn't it? But notice how Jesus describes what we effectively do when we are judgmental in this way. We go on a witch hunt for flaws in others, always being on the lookout for something to criticize, while we completely overlook and sometimes ignore on purpose our own sinfulness, the reality, the magnitude, and the evil of our own sin. Judgmentalism blinds us to that reality. It puts everything out of balance. We see the flaws and sins of others as far greater than ours. And we treat ours as just these harmless little things. But it's reversed. 
And, and notice, too, the term Jesus uses to describe the person that, that we're being judgmental of in this hypothetical scenario. What does he say? You notice the speck that is in your brother's eye. Jesus is getting into a specific context here within the community of his people. Judgmentalism is most egregious between members of the body of Christ. Where, really, what should we be doing? Seeking the best for one another? Building one another up? But so often it is within the church that judgmentalism happens, isn't it? Some of our deepest wounds have come from receiving that kind of judgmentalism, haven't they? And some of the deepest wounds we may have inflicted have come from that same kind of subjective judgment of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? Where, where there should be, as Peter says, a love that covers a multitude of sins, well, there can sometimes be in the church judgment that attacks a multitude of flaws. As we continue to verse 4, we see that Jesus adds yet another element to this parable, describing in another way, another category, the effect of judgmentalism. How do you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own? We've seen how judgmentalism makes us blind to our own sin. But here, Jesus reveals that judgmentalism actually incapacitates us from being helpful to other people, other believers. First, judgmentalism makes us unqualified to help. That's the implication here. If you have a log in your eye, you're clearly not very knowledgeable, wise, or skillful about, you know, getting things out of people's eyes. That's probably not your forte if you have a log in your own. So you have no place to go to somebody, right, with this sense of superiority. I know how to fix your problem. I know how to get that splinter out of there. But Jesus is saying, you haven't even dealt with the log. What are you talking about? You are not qualified, Jesus says. And that's not to say that as sinners, we cannot help other sinners, encouraging them, counseling them, helping them. Of course we can, but Jesus is talking about something beyond that. Verse 4 reveals that we are not in the position to tell others how to live while our own lives are in shambles. doesn't mean the words that we might say aren't true, but it means that we are not qualified morally to be making that pronouncement upon somebody. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, how can you possibly do that? How can you put yourself in that position? You have a log in your own eye. We are not qualified judges right, to make a pronouncement about other people when we ourselves demonstrate great spiritual immaturity. Now, as one theologian said, it's like a redwood tree teaching a shrub to be low profile. Right? Just kind of ridiculous. But second, judgmentalism makes us unable to help. It makes us unable to help. If we don't know how to deal with our own sins, if we haven't put any effort into dealing with our sins, or if we don't even know we have major sins, right? if we think we're the perfect Christian and we don't even have an idea right, of, of where we are actually far from perfect, how can we possibly give good counsel to other people? Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. But if you have a log in your eye and you've done nothing about it, you become blinded to the nature of your own sin and you cannot be described as a person of understanding who can help the heart of another. Likewise, Proverbs 4.23 says, We are to keep our hearts with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. 
But if we have not even kept our own heart, and subsequently have a log sticking out of our eye, an area of major problem, sin, dysfunction, then how can we know how to help others keep their own hearts? You wouldn't go to a, a mechanic who didn't drive a working car to work on yours, would you? That wouldn't make any sense. You wouldn't trust that guy working on your car if he couldn't even get his own running. Well, it's the same thing here. And there's a reason that shepherds of the flock are called to, uh, as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, to not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. That's the opposite of judgmentalism, isn't it? Elders in the church need to be able to provide good, biblical, wise counsel to the flock, which means that as elders, we have to fight vigorously against any kind of seed of judgmentalism because it would make us ineffective in discipling you. But the same is true just for your relationships, our relationships within the body of Christ. Now, we're called to do what Ephesians 4 15 says, speak the truth in love, in love. Again, that's the opposite of judgmentalism, isn't it? Judgmentalism says, because I think highly of myself, let me help you conform to my standard. Because if you don't, I'm going to think less of you. But we as Christians are called to say, because I love you and think highly of you as my brother in Christ or my sister in Christ, let me help you conform to Christ's standard. Let me bear your burden, not because I'm the example, not because I have the answers, but let's walk towards the God who does. That's what we are called to do. And ultimately, what does judgmentalism do? We see at the beginning of verse 5, it makes us a hypocrite. It makes us a hypocrite, as Jesus says. It causes us to judge others for things we may commit, or it causes us to focus on the sinfulness of others while ignoring our own. That's Hypocrisy. But there is a solution for judgmental people. There is help for judgmental people. And that leads us to our final point, the solution to judgmentalism. Verses 5 and 6, the solution to judgmentalism. Now, confession time, right? I, I personally tend to struggle with being critical, right? Sometimes I find myself being judgmental of things I don't agree with or I don't like. And my wife uh, very gently and sweetly rebuked me about that even earlier this week as I was going on this soapbox rant about something I heard on the Christian radio station. Blah, 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 blah. So this passage from Jesus hits close to home, right? And if this is a particular struggle of yours, uh, then maybe you can relate to this feeling of, right? It's like, it's like you're in this pit and it's hard to climb out of because you find yourself just kind of slipping back into that again and again. It can be hard to overcome. But there is good news. There is hope for change for judgmental people like me and perhaps like you. And in verse 5, Jesus gives us the first step of dealing with judgmentalism. What does he say? First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words... Deal with your sin and problems first. Make that the highest priority in your life. That's not always easy, is it? Right? Especially, we, we get so used to sometimes looking at the flaws that other people have. Right? We just get into that mode of vision. And it can be really difficult to examine your own heart, your thoughts, your actions, your life, because you might be afraid of what you find. 
But the Bible has a word for that, and it's called pride. Um, we like to think highly of ourselves, right? That's, that's our sinful flesh at work. We like to think that we are really great people, but that is the nature of judgmentalism. So Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye first. And what does that require of us? Humility and honesty. Humility and honesty. That's how we deal with hypocrisy and judgmentalism is humility and honesty. And first, we need to start with God. Right? We need to start with God as we deal with this log in our eye. We need to go to Him with humility. And as the psalmist says, ask Him to search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. In other words, we need to submit ourselves to the righteous evaluation of God Himself. We need to go to Him. He's the only and ultimate judge, right? He really is the only one who can accurately know and judge and reveal the nature of our hearts. We can deceive ourselves right at times. But God cannot be deceived. So we have to put aside our evaluation of ourselves and in humility, ask God to evaluate us instead. Search me and know me. And this isn't talking about justification. It's not talking about being made right with God. This is talking about our sanctification, the process by which we grow in, and are made more like Christ over time, the nature of indwelling sin. Right? Asking, Lord, what is it that I'm struggling with that I don't even see? What, what's that log that I may not even be aware of? That's a painful prayer to pray. And sometimes it's a, it's a little uncomfortable how the Lord exposes what's in our hearts. But it is necessary for us. And if we are asking sincerely, God will answer that prayer. Absolutely. And sometimes he even shows us those things when we don't ask, doesn't he? Right? And uh, then the question becomes, now that God's revealed this major log in my eye, what am I going to do about it? Am I going to keep going on pretending it's not there? Or am I going to confess it to him? Am I going to rehearse his promises of forgiveness in Christ? Am I going to ask him to help me repent of that and turn from that and seek the Spirit's help in putting to death the deeds of the flesh? What do we do, right, when God exposes that? But we also need to be humble and honest with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Right? It's very hard, and sometimes our brothers and sisters may have uncomfortable Challenging, convicting, humbling things to say to us if we seek their counsel. But it will ultimately benefit us greatly. And of course, we want to be wise, right? It's beneficial and good to go to a brother or sister that you know is godly, wise, mature, trustworthy, discreet. Somebody you know who's not going to flatter you or, you know, blab about your business, right? And to ask them, you know, brother, sister, where do you see me falling short? Where are those areas you think I could grow in Christ. That's not an easy thing to ask somebody, is it? But we can gain so much from it. And you know what? That person might even be willing to help you and disciple you in that area with gentleness and with love. Sometimes we also might receive criticism or admonishment that is exposing, right, of that log. Not from a trusted brother, but maybe even an enemy. And again, what we do with that is significant. Do we humbly consider it or just blow it off? they don't know what they're talking about, right? That's an important question to consider. So in essence, 
As we look at verse 5, we must consider our own sin with the greatest concern and feel its weight far more than we concern ourselves with the sins and flaws of other people. And when we do this, when we're humble, when we're honest with God and man and deal with our sin first, what does Jesus say? Then, at that point, you will be able to help your brother. Then at that point, you will have an accurate vision of what's going on. You can see your sin accurately, and you can better see theirs. We'll have a godly perspective. right? We'll have humility, which leads to wisdom, compassion, patience. And we can bring them to the same God that helped us too. But there's another component of overcoming judgmentalism that we need to talk about in verse 6. Jesus says, Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, judgmentalism is what we've been talking about so far, but we need to be careful not to go too far, right, to one side and become those that never make any moral evaluations of anything at any point in time. Um, as believers, we are instructed to make moral evaluations about things. We are. That's, that's biblical, and we'll see that shortly. We are to judge rightly, right, is what we're told to do. And that's the other part in dealing with judgmentalism. We need to change the standard by which we judge. We've just read what Jesus says here in verse 6. And commentators argue on what the dogs and the pigs symbolize since sometimes these terms are used in connection with Gentiles. But Jesus isn't referring to ethnic groups here. He's describing a spiritual reality. He says, don't put sacred, precious, holy things before dogs and pigs lest they turn to attack you. Right? We, we hear about these animals. We think dogs, pigs, right? We're thinking cute puppies, piglet from Winnie the Pooh. But that is not the case in ancient Palestine. Dogs were not domesticated. They were like these street gangs, right, of vicious, dirty animals that would eat garbage and sometimes attack people. It's not a nice picture, right? Uh, pigs in the same way were, uh, weren't these cute little pink things. They were these hairy, large, potentially violent animals, crossbred with wild boars. Um, even domestic pigs, right, they can still be violent and attack people today. Pigs are potentially dangerous animals. D.A. Carson kind of fleshes out what Jesus is is uh, illustrating here. He says, Jesus sketches a picture of a man holding a bag of precious pearls, confronting a pack of hulking hounds and some wild pigs. As the animals glare hungrily, he takes out his pearls and sprinkles them on the street. Thinking they're about to gulp down some bits of food, the animals pounce on the pearls. Swift disillusionment sets in. The pearls are too hard to chew, quite tasteless, and utterly unappetizing. Enraged, the wild animals spit out the pearls, turn on the man, and tear him to pieces. That's an illustrative account of what Jesus says in verse 6. And what is this referring to? Well, the pearl, the holy thing, the sacred thing Jesus mentions, refers to the gospel. As Christians, what do we have that is more sacred than that? All right, that is what should be most precious to the disciple of Christ. And Jesus instructs us to exercise discretion with the gospel, to exercise right judgment. After all, in this picture, right, if, if the pearls are the gospel, the dogs and the pigs are those who respond to the gospel, not with apathy, not with mild opposition, but with mockery, slander, blasphemy. Those who absolutely despise and detest the gospel. Really what Jesus is getting at is this. There will be people who respond to the gospel with mockery and blasphemy and overt hatred, 
do not continue evangelizing these people. I know that sounds like anathema, right, to our kind of modern day. But that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying don't keep giving them the gospel. Don't keep giving them an opportunity to dishonor God with the way they respond to his word. Move on. Don't give them fuel for their slander. And on the flip side, there's a sense in which perhaps don't increase their condemnation. But what does this require of us? What does verse 6 require of us? It requires us to exercise judgment, doesn't it? It requires us to evaluate whether a person is responding to the gospel that way. And it requires us to think about whether we should put the gospel before them. And it also requires us to make a proper judgment about the value and sacredness of the gospel. Right? If we're not doing that, if we're not thinking about how precious the gospel is, then we may just treat it like another casual thing to throw out indiscriminately. Right? Now, of course, we should bring the gospel to all people. Right? That is a message all people should hear. But if somebody responds in this manner, Jesus says, move on. Move on. Have a proper judgment of the gospel's value and of their condition to move on. And this gets us to the last part of the solution to judgmentalism. Develop biblical judgment. Develop biblical judgment. In John 7, 24, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees who judged by their eyes, their ears, and he tells them, judge with right judgment. Now, in this text, judgmentalism is condemned, but judging is not off the table if it's done rightly. And the Bible has a word for this. It's called discernment. Discernment. And biblical discernment requires several things. First, it requires us to realize that only God is truly able to judge people because he alone knows everything. He is the one that judges justly. Over and over in the Psalms, he's the one that judges with righteousness. So biblical judgment means we're putting him on the judgment seat and we are putting ourselves under his standard and judgment, right? And this puts verse 2, the judgment with which we pronounce, in proper perspective, right? Instead of pronouncing our subjective judgment on others, we put ourselves and others under the same standard of God's judgment, of his righteousness, which leads to the second thing biblical discernment requires. And the second thing it requires is that we use God's word, what he's revealed in scripture, as our standard by which to evaluate things. Because it's not subjective. It's clearly written for us in our instruction. Does a person have a certain hobby you don't like? Do their spending patterns not align with yours? Do they hold particular views on things that you don't agree with? Well, that may be, but unless the Bible itself condemns their actions, you need to let it go. You need to let it go. You have no right to pronounce judgment where the Bible does not pronounce judgment. So discernment requires reliance and commitment to Scripture as the lens through which we view all things. Number three, biblical judgment, discernment, requires that we must be growing in our knowledge of God's Word and wisdom and in our Christian character. And Paul writes to the Ephesians that they should walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. There's that term there. Try to discern, to judge, to evaluate what is pleasing to the Lord. Notice God and His Word are the standard here too. But notice as well, that effort is required on our part to discern. If we are not thinking about what God's Word says and trying to grow in our understanding of it, well, we're not going to know how to use the tools He's given us. So we should actively be holding things up 
to the standard of Scripture and saying, is this pleasing to God based on what he says? Likewise, the author of Hebrews states that those who are spiritually mature are those who, quote, have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice, constant practice, to distinguish good from evil. Again, that requires practice and effort on our part. If you're not constantly asking yourself how things align with what God has revealed in his word, you're not going to know how to evaluate things based on that. It, as the author to the Hebrews says, it requires practice and effort and growth. But we need to be careful, lest all we think is required is knowledge. You know, in fact, knowledge without compassion is dangerous. And we do great harm in thinking that all that's required for discernment is knowledge. Because anybody can grow in knowledge, right? Anybody can learn more information. But biblical judgment, biblical discernment requires biblical character. Biblical character. I love what Paul writes to the Philippians. Turn over there, Philippians chapter 1. As he underlines for us the relationship between growing in knowledge and growing in godliness. Philippians chapter 1. I know we're going a little long today. Thank you for bearing with me. Bearing with me patiently. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You notice how both things are there? It's not just discernment and knowledge and approving what is excellent. That's part of it, right? That's vital. But what else does Paul pray for? It is their love that is abounding with knowledge and discernment. He prays that they'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness. So it's not just growing your Bible knowledge. It's may your character be shaped by the Word of God and the example of Christ. That's what we need both of. Because right? if, we, if we have just biblical knowledge and no love, no compassion, no maturity, you know, it, it is a dangerous, dangerous thing. You can imagine somebody who is untrained with a giant sword just going crazy, right, and causing all kinds of damage. That's what we are at risk of doing if we're just going after the knowledge without the love. Speak the truth in love, right? They go together. We need both. Ultimately, as disciples of Jesus, we are called to reject self-righteous judgmentalism and to subject all things to God's word, not our own standards. And only by doing that can we be helpful in our biblical judgment rather than harmful. So let me ask you, brother, sister, have you been judgmental? Have you used yourself as a standard and, and been harsh or self-righteous in your thoughts towards others? Well, turn from that. Humble yourself before God. Seek his forgiveness. But know that in Christ, that forgiveness is provided. Because do you know who was never judgmental? Christ. Christ never had a judgmental thought in his life. He judges all things according to God's law with righteousness. I love what Isaiah says about Christ, that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, 
and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Though we may struggle with judgmentalism due to sin, we've been given a Savior who is always impartial, never subjective, but who judged all things according to God's perfect standard of righteousness, which unlike us, he actually fulfilled through his obedience to the Father. How amazing is it to receive the gift of his righteousness when we consider our own judgmentalism? So may we seek to submit ourselves to God's righteous standard like our Savior Jesus did. May we seek to humbly evaluate ourselves, all things, in fact, according to his word. But may we leave the ultimate judgment to the true and righteous judge. Let's pray as we prepare for the Lord's table.